the miracle of Christ walking on water, as found in Matthew 14, verses 22 to 23. Hear the word of God. And immediately he, Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And after he had sent the multitudes away, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already many stadia away from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were frightened, saying, it is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind stopped, and those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's son. Of course, we have the great blessing of living in a place that is surrounded on all sides by beautiful turquoise waters. That being said, we have never seen a person walking on top of those waters. (laughs) Gravity sees to that. So what should we learn from the miracle of Jesus walking on the water? Well, to answer that question, here's what we need to know about the timing of the miracle. This miracle happened very soon after Jesus had performed the miracle of feeding 5,000 men and probably 5,000 women and probably maybe 2,000 children out of one brown bag lunch. On that feeding occasion, our Lord showed himself to be more than sufficient for physical needs that were found in the crowd. There were baskets of leftover food collected. Jesus was more than sufficient to meet the physical needs. But on the occasion of the walking on the water, Jesus showed himself to be more than sufficient for other than physical needs. Some of us here today have physical needs. They're real. Some of us need food, some healing, some more sleep. Some of us here today, on the other hand, have non-physical needs, friendship. Some of you desperately need a friend a job, peace, peace within you because you know that you're at peace with God and he has forgiven you of your sins in Christ. 
we come to assemble today with needs. Some are physical needs and some are non-physical needs. But I'm here to tell you and I'm here to tell me that Jesus Christ is more than sufficient for all these needs, every one of them. Jesus, I'm going to coin my own word, Jesus is more than enoughness. More than enoughness is our Savior. We're going to see four things in which Christ is more than enough in this miracle of him walking on the water. And we should see these four things in which Jesus is more than enough for a reason. The Lord wants you to see these four ways from the miracle of walking on the water that Jesus is more than enough He's given for a reason. He wants you and me to tap into his more than enoughness in our day-to-day living. We don't want to be like the woman who was on the cruise ship. And she would be seated in a chaise lounge eating cheddar cheese and crackers. And this one fellow passenger, on every time he went to the dining room for lunch or dinner, he would see the same lady in the same chair eating the same cheddar cheese and the same soda crackers. And he would say, I never see you in the dining room. Why don't you come to the dining room? And she says, oh, I couldn't afford the food in the dining room. So I brought my own cheese and crackers. He said, Madam, you've already paid for all the meals in the dining room. We want to see the more than enoughness of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning so that we will not relegate ourselves to cheese and crackers when he has provided for us more than enough to meet our physical and our non-physical needs So let me overview the lessons, four of them, that we'll see in the miracle of Christ walking on the water. And after overviewing them, I'll consider them with you one by one. First, the Savior protects. Second, the Savior prepares. Third, the Savior prays. And fourth, the Savior provides. And so I ask you, do you need protection today? Jesus can provide more than enough protection for you. Or do you need your way to be prepared? The Lord can prepare your way beyond what you could even imagine. Because he sees out and in front of you, so far out and around the corner of the building, he sees it all. He can prepare your way for you. Or do you need prayer today? Well, I can encourage you that your Savior is at the right hand of his Father in heaven doing just that. He's praying for you, each one of you. He's infinite in his understanding of you and me. And he doesn't wait for us to pray to him. He wants us to pray to him. He commands us to pray to him. But he's praying for you even if you fail to pray for him, to him. What about provision? You say, Pastor, if you only knew, if you only knew the things for which I'm trusting God to provide, a repentant husband, a returned prodigal child, money to pay the water bill, the cancer diagnosis you've just had, if you only knew, Pastor, 
what I'm asking God to provide for me. Well, I can tell you, I don't know what all of you are asking God to provide for you, but I do know this. Christ Jesus can provide more than enough of whatever you truly need. I know that. So let's take these four lessons on the more than enoughness of the Lord Jesus one by one. First, the Savior protects. The Savior protects. Again, after Jesus miraculously fed perhaps as many as 12,000 persons, they only counted the men, 5,000 men, shall we say 5,000 women, shall we say 2,000 kids, perhaps as many as 12,000 persons, after Jesus had fed them from a little boy's sack lunch, the crowd wanted to make him king. They believed, with their bellies filled, that Jesus Christ had the power and the charisma to lead the nation of Israel out of Roman oppression and military dominance. They were fired up. And that desire to politically revolt had cold water thrown on it by Jesus retreating from the adoring crowd to pray alone. And water was thrown on it that he went apart from them. He went out of sight. He went up a mountain to pray. Here was the crowd ready to make him their king with political aspiration. But at the same time, Jesus Christ directed his followers to go to Bethsaida, on the other side of Lake, Lake of Galilee, for a ministry assignment. He wanted them to get away from the sight of the feeding of the multitude. He got himself out of that sight by going on top of a mountain to pray alone. He sent his disciples to Bethsaida on a ministry trip. And guess what? That left the revolutionary crowd with nothing visible present with them that fired up the revolutionary ideas. Says that Jesus made his men get in the boat. He compelled them. I don't know if I could say he forced them, but he made them, verse 22, and immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. If Jesus Christ had not sent his disciples away in the boat, then there's a very good likelihood that the disciples would have been caught in a terrible dilemma, a terrible tug of war. On the one hand, the revolutionaries expecting them to be on board with the revolution they wanted, and on the other side, their Lord and Master Jesus being unwilling to be made king until the second coming event. It does not seem like a stretch to say that the disciples, had they been left on scene with the revolutionary mob, could well have been in danger of bodily harm from that irate crowd if the crowd sensed they weren't going to cajole and push Jesus to be king right now. Well, nonetheless, Jesus averted that possibility. It looked like just a straightforward ministry assignment to Bethsaida, but actually it was more than that. It was needed protection for his men. He got them out of a very dangerous situation. He protected them. 
verse 22. And immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him in the, to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. On their way, going across the Sea of Galilee in a boat, Jesus' men encountered something else. If the crowd was dangerous, and it was, the lake was dangerous that occasion. They needed protection in the boat from a storm. Sea of Galilee has a rocky shoreline. Beth and I have seen it. It's a rocky shoreline. It's a shallow lake, very shallow. And so storms whip up on the Lake of Galilee in an instant almost. There are low mountains that surround the Sea of Galilee, and they have between the mountains almost like a wind tunnel effect. And if strong winds blow through between these low-lying mountains like a wind tunnel, it whips up the shallow waters of the Lake of Galilee very quickly, very unpredictably. And that's what happened here. On the way to crossing the Sea of Galilee to get to their ministry assignment in Bethsaida, Jesus' men encountered a, vi- a vicious storm, a violent storm. Verse 24. But the boat was already many stadia away from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. It was ironic, really, that to protect the men from a lot of persons, Jesus sent the men right into a lot of panic on the lake. And this shows us some important realities. Number one, adversity is not always a spanking. Sometimes it's a shield. Number two, sometimes the door out of danger and into protection is a door of difficulties. Number three, often our all-knowing God is protecting us even when we don't know that we're being threatened. Number four, sometimes it's the storm which is the best will of God for us. Personally, when I consider these four things I've just listed. I think of a baby which Beth and I did not get to adopt. We heard of the baby living in Chattanooga, Tennessee, in the birth mother's womb. And we affectionately called the baby we were told we could adopt Choo-Choo, Chattanooga Choo-Choo. What we didn't know was that The birth mother became with child without a marriage commitment from a husband. What we didn't know was that the birth mother had a legalistic and harsh pastor father who kicked her out of his home, and she had to fend for herself during her pregnancy. A little baby choo-choo was born, but we found out later that she was born seriously underweight and malnourished, and that, in fact, baby Choo-Choo passed away after being born. That, of course, was very, very sad news at many different levels. We certainly saw that time as a storm, 
we had not been able to adopt any child before we considered choo-choo. We saw the storm, but what we certainly did not see until afterwards is that Jesus rescued us out of dangers we weren't even aware of. For instance, the danger of bonding to a little one that wouldn't live but days. The danger of spending very limited financial resources on that adoption, which simply would not be available on any other future adoption. We thought about it later, and we were in danger of dealing with a very hard and heartless birth grandfather. And the truth is that baby Choo Choo was adopted by the Heavenly Father. At this point, I need to point out that the Savior protected the Elliots in that particular instance, but I also need to point out that the Savior has protected each of you, and the Savior is protecting each of you. It may look like a life-threatening storm this morning, but he is protecting you in the midst of it. And so the Savior protects, but there's more. The Savior prepares. The Savior prepares. Probably the Lord Jesus, as I've been pointing out, fed approximately 12,000 men, women, and kids around 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Because that, in the Jewish way of marking time, was the first of two evenings to the Jews. The first of two evenings in a typical day to a Jewish mind was around 3 in the afternoon. That's the first evening. Look back to verse 15 in the chapter we're in. And when it was evening, there it is, the disciples came to him saying, the place is desolate and the time is already past. So send the multitudes away that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. The disciples became aware of the lack of food for that many people around three in the afternoon. They were probably hungry. Even the ones that had a very good breakfast before going to Hear Jesus, the rabbi, preach. They are probably very hungry, but three o'clock in the afternoon. And then fast forward the time here. Probably the Lord Jesus got alone to pray around sundown because that was the second of the term evenings in the Jewish way of marking a day. Verse 23. And after he had sent the multitudes away, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray, and it was evening. There it is. He was there alone. And so perhaps based on what's said in verse 25, perhaps the Lord walked on the water to guard his men in the fourth watch of the night. That was between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. We can figure out when you get all these place markers that the disciples did not have Jesus physically with them for perhaps a total of 12 hours. I would submit this morning that those were very tough hours. Those were very scary hours. Hours, I'm sure, of thinking and saying, if only the Lord were here. But this time... The Lord wasn't with them. 
in the wave-battered boat. Of course, there was another time in the Gospels when Jesus was with them in their boat during a bad storm. And on that different occasion, Jesus was asleep before he awakened and calmed the storm. That's in Matthew 8. But in this particular storm we're studying today, Jesus was not in the boat. The disciples were alone. Jesus was out of sight. Do you think that Jesus planned it in this way so his disciples would have to trust him without seeing him? I do. Could it have been that the Lord was teaching them lessons which they would need after his resurrection and ascension when he would be apart from them and not seen by them when he was in heaven? Surely, Physical maturity doesn't come overnight, and neither does spiritual maturity come overnight. You see, when it comes to spiritual maturity, we need challenges, we need practice, we need experience, we need lessons, we need the scriptures, we need tests, we need the church family, we need failures, we need victories, we need time, and yes, we need storms. Back then, the disciples needed to spiritually mature so as to know that Christ's power was no less great and no less available when he was absent from them. Have you learned that? That the Lord Jesus has no less power, no less availability to you because he's in heaven apart from you and unseen? And so right now, we all need to spiritually mature so that we know that Christ is no less active and no less involved in our lives when he is now in heaven and removed from us who are living on earth. The Savior prepares. Verse 22 again. And immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. Again, I'll make the point that I've referenced earlier. He made his disciples get into the boat. The idea is that he compelled his disciples to get into the boat. He urged them to get into the boat. Perhaps it would seem they might not have decided to get into the boat on their own. But Christ prepares He knew what he had in mind, and he knew that what he had in mind by getting them into the boat was essential in order that they would experience the storm, in order for them to see themselves for themselves that he both protects and prepares his own. May I state the obvious? That no matter what your needs are this morning here, Jesus knows exactly what he has in mind for each of you. He's preparing you for what he has in mind. And that preparation may include putting you through a storm. Verses 22 to 24. And immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And after he had sent the multitudes away, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening... He was there alone. 
But the boat was already many stadia away from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. The third point in your outlines this morning is that the Savior prays. The Savior prays. When the storm whipped up as quickly as it did, Jesus was up on the mountain and he was praying. And from that vantage point, he could see his men down there on the lake in the storm. He saw their struggles. He saw their efforts. He saw their danger. And he saw their fears. He saw it all. 23, and after he had sent the multitudes away, he went up the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. Currently, of course, our Lord has ascended on high to heaven to the Father's right hand. And from there, he looks down on Nassau and Calvary Bible Church and your life and your marriage and your workplace, and your kids. He looks down at each of us. And from there, he observes our trials and our temptations and our wear and our tear. And from heaven, the Lord Jesus looks down and observes our problems and our perplexities and our pain. We're observed in love. And from there in heaven at the Father's right hand, he prays for us and he knows our needs better than we know those needs ourselves. Hebrews 7.25, what a great verse. Therefore he, the risen Christ, is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. Watch it. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus lives in heaven to make intercession for you, to pray for you. Staggering. What a staggering blessing. And then Romans 8.34 says the same thing. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Jesus is praying. Just as he prayed on the mountain, as his men were in the storm on the lake, from the right hand of the Father, Jesus is praying for me. Jesus is praying for each of you. One of the beautiful things which Jesus prays, according to the scriptures, is that we would be sanctified. Jesus prays that each one of us would be sanctified. I've taught you before that to be sanctified means to set apart for someone's use. When my mother brought out the cut crystal candy dishes as company were coming over, <laughs> I knew that candy was sanctified candy. It was set apart for the company's possession and use. If you're redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, if you're saved, converted, a believer in Jesus Christ, a Jesus follower, then Jesus is praying that you will be set apart increasingly for God's possession and use. So cooperate. Cooperate. And so right now, from the mountaintop of heaven, our Savior looks down and prays for us in the midst of our storms of life. And Jesus prays that we'll be increasingly more and more set apart for God's possession and use. John 17, 17, Jesus Christ's prayer in the upper room before the cross to his Father. Sanctify them, his disciples, in the truth your word is truth. 
the medium that is used by the Holy Spirit to answer Jesus' prayer for each of us that we be sanctified in an increasing way is the Scriptures. You want to be set apart for Christ's possession and use? Sure you do. Then you can't do that without being in the book. The Bible. He uses his word to set us apart for himself. And while it is true that Jesus prays for us, of course, we must make note that it's equally true that he wants us to pray to him. Jesus wants us to pray to him. Stepping back from me at this point in the miracle that we're going through it, I want to step back with you to the scene of the miracle. I want you to see seven things. First of all, the disciples were in a terrifying storm. Verse 24, but the boat was already many stadia away from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Second, they had been rowing for perhaps nine hours. Verse 25, and in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. We know from the parallel account of this miracle in John chapter 6 and verse 19 that they had only progressed in their rowing for these nine hours, three or four miles a fraction of the trip to Bethsaida. For these experienced sailor fishermen desperately needed help. Five, Christ saw them in their need from the mountain. Six, Christ left the mountain and walked toward them right on top of the water. And seven, Jesus understood their need. Jesus could meet their need. Jesus was willing to meet their need. Jesus was coming to meet their need. But, however, yet, in the same account of this same miracle in Mark chapter 6, we read something extraordinarily (laughs) hard to believe. Mark 6, 48 says, seeing them, straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, about the fourth watch of the night, he, Jesus, came to them, walking on the sea. Now watch. And he intended to pass them by. What? He intended to pass them by. He saw them. He loved them. He cared for them. He was their answer to their problem. He walked to them on the mountain, off the mountain, onto the water, got within a close range of the boat, and he intended to walk them by? How could that be? Easy. He was going to walk right by them if they failed to ask for his help. He was going to walk right by them on the water if they didn't cry out to him for deliverance. Jesus was going to leave them in the storm if they tried to handle their storm without him. You know, I'm not proud to say this, but when I reflect, there are so many times that I failed to pray before I tried to solve my own problems in my life. And because I failed to pray so many times when I tried to solve my own problems, I just wonder what help from Jesus I missed out on. Maybe you can relate. But to be honest, I'm ashamed that there have been plenty of times in my life when I've not prayed and I said, Lord, I'll handle, I'll handle it, I'm fine. And therefore, I've not received the help which he had for me. Maybe you feel the same. Mark 6.48 again. 
And seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea, and he intended to pass them by. There is something more in Mark 6. The next two verses after verse 48, verses 49 and 50 says, But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke with them and said to them, Take courage, it is I. There was a bad case of mistaken identity. The men in the boat thought that Jesus was a ghost. And so they cried out, not in prayer, but in panic. They mistook God for a ghost. And you know, that kind of mistaken identity will kill your prayers and mine. You know, when we mistake superstition for sovereignty, when we mistake horoscope for hope, when we mistake luck for the Lord, Island luck. By the way, you know the island luck at the foot of the bridge um, off PI? I was at the red light, minding my own business. And this young man in his 20s, I saw him go bounding to the doors to go into that den of thieves. And he went like this. Asking God to bless his gambling. But when we mistake superstition for sovereignty, when we mistake horoscope for hope, when we mistake luck for the Lord, then our prayers have two dangers. Either our prayers are going to be hollow prayers or they will be halted prayers. You have a sovereign God. You don't have to rely on superstition. You have a God of hope. You don't have to go to the newspaper for your horoscope. You have a Lord of Lords. You don't have to trust luck in some gambling numbers house to provide for you. And so the bottom line here is that the, the Savior prays. He prayed from the mountain for his men on the lake, and he prays for us on earth at his Father's right hand. And he prays, but also he expects that we will pray Monday nights at 6.30. We pray. Hebrews 4, verse 16, just to show you how much Jesus wants you to pray to him. Hebrews 4, 16, let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. Jesus wants you to draw near to his throne in prayer with confidence that he will hear you, that he is the savior of grace, that he can give you mercy, that he can grant you grace in your time of need. Jesus prays, but equally he expects you to pray to him. Back to the miracle, verse 22. And immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side. And while he sent the multitudes away, and after he had sent the multitudes away, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. 
And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already many stadia away from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were frightened, saying, it's a ghost. And they cried out for fear. To review, so far in this miracle, we have been reminded of three wonderful things. The Savior protects. The Savior prepares. And the Savior prays. Fourth, the Savior provides The Savior provides. Will you notice that the Lord Jesus provided two things to his men that were in the boat in the bad storm? Number one, Jesus provided his presence. And number two, Jesus provided his power. Consider that Jesus provided his presence. Look at 27, would you? But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Simply because Jesus was then present with them, they could take courage. They could stop being afraid. And that's how it is for you and me, too. Someone has said, when Satan and fear ring your doorbell, send Jesus to answer the door, and there will be no one there. You see, at any given moment, anxiety and worship cannot live in the same brain. If you are anxious, that's a signal you need to worship. Anxiety and worship cannot live together in the same brain at the same moment. And so when we recognize Jesus for who he is, we have no more fear, just like the disciples of the boat in the storm. Jesus' presence is how they had and how we have courage. Then and now, the Savior provides us his presence. Then, his literal presence, but now, since his ascension back to his Father, Jesus' presence comes to us in the person of the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us. Verses 28 to 31. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat, and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. So far, so good. Verse 30. But seeing the wind, he became afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? Peter you got to love Peter. He was a Jesus follower with such extremes. He was up and down like a yo-yo. He was spontaneous to a fault. He was very good at speaking before thinking, this man called Peter. But Peter, even for Peter, had a rather surprising reaction when he saw Jesus walking on top of the water. Verse 28 again. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Well, I'll tell you something. I love the water, (laughs) and I love the Lord. But I am never going to ask Jesus to command me to walk on the water. I'm sorry. 
Well, quite amazingly, Jesus did command Peter, and Jesus caused Peter to stand on rough water. Verse 29. And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. Now, it's interesting that the Lord didn't rebuke Peter for asking to walk on the water, and he didn't rebuke Peter for actually walking on the water. Peter's faith in Christ meant that he could do what the laws of physics said that he could not do. One thing, though, was that even Peter's big faith in Christ was fragile and fleeting. And so is my big faith in Christ at times fragile and fleeting. And maybe your big faith in Christ is also fragile and fleeting, going as fast as it comes. Verse 30, but seeing the wind, he became afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out saying, Lord, save me. And so, yes, the Lord Jesus didn't rebuke Peter for asking to walk on the water, and he didn't rebuke Peter for actually walking on the water, but the Lord did rebuke Peter for something, for doubting when he was walking well on the water. Verse 31, and immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Jesus provided his power, not just his presence. He provided his presence by walking to them on the water to their boat in distress. But Jesus also provided them his power. Everybody involved on the scene was given Jesus' power. Why do I say that? Because to Peter was given Jesus' power to be able to walk on the water. And to all of the others who were in the boat, Jesus' power was given to them in that he stopped the wind and the waves. 32. And when they got into the boat, the wind stopped. Stopped. Relief. The storm had ended. It went calm. Nature was normalized. It got quiet. They looked around and They said, the danger's gone. Praise the Lord. Worship the Lord. Surrender to the Lord. Now, there was something in this miracle that Matthew doesn't touch upon, but John does. In John chapter 6, verse 21, it is reported that after Jesus calmed the storm, he transported the boat, and the disciples to the shore where Bethsaida was. No one rowed a stroke. The miracle was a a metaphysics miracle, the time-space miracle. God moved the boat and the disciples in the boat across the lake instantly and put them at the shoreline at Bethsaida where their ministry assignment was. If Jesus Christ's miracle of walking on the water was a miracle of physics, this transportation of the boat instantly to the shoreline beside Bethsaida was a miracle of metaphysics.
The God who is over all the laws of science suspended those laws with respect to physics, suspended those laws with respect to metaphysics, and had his son walk on the water and the boat be transported from the middle of the lake to the shore adjacent to Bethsaida. This miracle of Jesus walking on the water shows us a few things. It shows us that the Savior protects. Remember, it protects. He got them away from the revolutionary-minded crowd. It shows us that the Savior prepares. He set them, put them, urged them to get into a boat, and he put himself on a mountain. He separated them from being physically together where they could not see him so they would learn to trust him without seeing him. He prepared them. The Savior prays. He saw them from the mountain. He was concerned for them from the mountain. He prayed for them from the mountain. And he's praying for you and me from the right hand of the Father today. And the Savior provides He provided his presence and his power on that occasion on the lake, and he still provides his presence in the person of the Holy Spirit who lives and dwells the blood-bought, converted child of God, the redeemed person who has the Holy Spirit of God living inside permanently, constantly. You have the presence of God within you if you're saved. Jesus The Savior protects. Jesus, the Savior, prepares. Jesus, the Savior, prays. Jesus, the Savior, provides. And another P that's not on your outline, the Savior positions. It wasn't just that he transported the fishing boat with his disciples to any old place. He took them to where he wanted them to serve him. Much like the fish spit out Jonah by Nineveh. You can trust if you're a Christian. The Savior will protect you. The Savior will prepare you. The Savior prays for you. The Savior provides for you. And the Savior positions you right where he wants you to serve him. And my job? He positioned me at my job? Yeah. On my street? With my neighbors? Yeah. He positioned you. With my husband? With my wife? Yeah, he positioned you to serve him right where you are. This church? Mm -hmm. He's positioned you right where he wants you to serve. Verse 33. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, you are certainly God's son. We have to copy that, church. When we see Jesus protect us, prepare us, pray for us, provide for us, position us, we must copy these disciples and we must worship him. We must acknowledge him to be God. We must confess his great worth. Will you notice that they didn't say, well, on on to Bethsaida to do God's work. No, they fell on their knees, onto our knees to revere God's son. There's a difference between Worshiping God some and working for God some. They knew to fall on their knees right in the boat and to say, you're God of inestimable worth. 
If I have nothing, but I have you, Jesus, I have everything. If I have everything, but I don't have you, Jesus, I have nothing. You know, it may be silly to point it out, but I'm going to. But when the physically exhausted and emotionally drained men instantly got to their destination on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and when they enjoyed no more wind, no more waves, and no more work, and no more worry, they did not give credit to their boat. They did not give credit to their oars. They did not give credit to the ghost, which they thought they'd seen. They did not give credit to Peter. And they certainly did not give credit to themselves. Not a chance. They gave all the credit, all the thanks, all the worship to Jesus Christ, called him God's own son, called him God. What a beautiful miracle by a God who still works miracles. Let's pray. What a miracle you did, Lord Jesus. Thank you. We worship you for your more than enoughness. When you performed the miracle of walking on the water, you protected your men, you prepared your men, you prayed for your men, and you provided for your men. By the Holy Spirit prompting and by the Holy Spirit positioning, give us each one a lifestyle of worshiping you because you do the, the same for us every day. Jesus, we pray these things in your storm-stopping and wave-walking name. Amen.